Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Radically Loved Podcast. I'm joined by a very special guest. It's actually, I don't know that we've ever had like a guru status guest on our show before. And I am so excited to be having this conversation today with Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswati. Thank you so much for being here. Rosie, it's such a joy to be with you. Just such a, a gift and a blessing to be together today. I am so, I, I've been loving your book and I, I just got it. It's called very, I, there's so many things in here. So I'm going to try and stay concise, but it's called, I don't know if you guys can see this from Hollywood to the Him, Himalayas. I say Himal, Himalayas, is it Himalayas or Himalayas? You know, in, in India, we say Himalayas. So I say Hollywood to the Himalayas, but in the West, in the West, they say Himalayas. That's also fine. It's like in India, we speak about the flowing river as Ganga and here they say Ganges. So it's neither a right nor a wrong situation. It's more of a, you know, traditional, traditional pronunciation from India compared to a Western pronunciation. But either way is perfectly fine. Hollywood to the Himalayas, Hollywood to the Himalayas, either way. Well, it is a journey to say the least. Um, And it's basically narrating the journey that you had into healing and transformation. And I was able to relate to so much of this. And actually this thought came in as we were saying that I'm like, why are we so obsessed with being right all the time? You know, like, oh, I just want to make sure it's right. I want to make sure I'm saying your name right. I want to make sure I'm saying this right. What is that about? Yeah, well, I think it's about a lot of things. I would say, first of all, there's a beautiful element of respect and care. You know, in the same way when you love someone and you are making them dinner or breakfast or a cup of tea or coffee, right? You want it to be, you want it to be exactly right. And everybody's got a little bit of a quirk. Somebody likes it really hot. Someone doesn't like it too hot. You know, the, the right ratio of coffee to whatever you put in it. And when you really love someone, you know, if you're just a barista, you may not necessarily be that fully, fully anchored in the attention of exactly what temperature it is. But when you're making it for the loved one, you're going to be much more attentive. So I would say, first of all, I think there's respect and love and care. And you want to make sure that things are pronounced correctly, which is, which is beautiful. And I'm deeply grateful for it. 
obviously we all also have that tendency toward if it's not perfect, it's not right. And that's much more of a tendency that is helpful for us to look at in order to become free of, but don't, don't immediately jump on yourself that the, the instinct to be right is inherently something that is wrong. Mm. It may just be really beautiful run of the mill respect and care and, you know, compassion. But if it is something that you find that there's a, a tendency toward perfectionism in all areas, obviously that it paralyzes us. It keeps us stuck. It's a brilliant defense mechanism against ever actually doing anything because if we can't get it perfect, why bother? If we know we're not going to get it perfect, we freeze even in the attempt of it. And it, it keeps us from stepping up to the plates of our lives in so many circumstances. Yeah. Oh, that was so beautiful. Thank you so much. I knew we were going to get some really great insight and gems. And um, I, in, in trying to prepare for this conversation, I felt like a lot of that was coming up. I, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I asked great questions and that things were correct and that I was able to um, sort of like do the book justice and there is that sense of care but underneath that you're right there's also the undertone of it has to be right or what like or what is gonna happen you know so yeah thank you for saying that I think it's beautiful and I I really do love your story so much I I growing up in East LA during the LA riots for me was definitely a, an interesting transition to go from being in a chaotic environment to being um, in a not in a chaotic environment in a different way, right? When you're in that state of hypervigilance to go from there to learning how to regulate yourself, learning how to connect to yourself on, on a higher level. Um, I, I really related to your story, your, your transformation story and, and how you ended up in India from, you know, being here in, in California and being a Cali girl like, like me and sort of being open to that experience going through uh, an eating disorder and going through a divorce and, you know, all of those uh, you know, issues that sometimes life, life throws at us. I, I felt like it was very real and, uh, beautiful and authentic. And I, I kept thinking as I was reading it, going back to that perfectionist thing that obviously it's an issue that I have, but thinking, oh, I wish I would have read this sooner. Like, I wish I would have had this book like 10 years ago, or I wish I could have read this 15 years ago. And um, so, yeah, I mean, going from that, um, I'd really love for you to share a little bit of your story and, and how you, you got here. You, you're, you're, you've been anointed, you've been initiated, you're a guru. And 
there's not a lot of female gurus out there right now. And I, I'm so grateful that our paths have crossed. So if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit or if anything else sparked up while I was. Sure. Sure. And first of all, just on that element of perfectionism and wanting it to be perfect. What I've realized is our, our minds, our brains can never really do perfect on any deep level. So we can, we can solve a math problem perfectly. We can color in the lines perfectly. Anything that is separate from us, something that we are holding at an arm's length, so a math problem, a picture we're coloring, a meal we are preparing, whatever it may be, as long as it's separate from us and we are doing to it, yeah, you can do it perfectly. And yet on a deep level, on the level of the heart, on the level of the spirit, the mind cannot function there. It only functions in separation and love and spirit is all about opening to oneness. And so the only way to do perfect in the realm of the heart and the spirit is just to be so totally open to whatever the perfection of the moment may be. Not that I've created, not that I've manifested, not that I've made happen, but just we tap into a a perfection that exists in the universe because the moment is perfect. That of course doesn't mean always it's gonna be what I want, that it's gonna be my agenda, But being able to recognize the perfection of that which is happening. And if I can just open my heart to it. So when you were talking about, you know, perfectly preparing for this talk, what I would say to you is, yeah, it's great to be planned and prepared. And I'm so, I'm so touched that you've put in so much time and attention and intention. And I would say, that perfection is actually only going to arise when your heart is open to the moment that you and I are both blessed to be part of that is already perfect. And when that perfectly open heart connects to the perfection of the moment, only perfection will emerge. But if If the mind is so focused already on like, oh, but wait, you know, I've got my fourth question that I have to ask, but the heart is totally open to something else. (laughs) You miss, you miss the opportunity for that perfection. And so from, from my life, that's what I, what I really realized as I moved both quite literally, physically, and also metaphorically from, from Hollywood, from the land that I had grown up in, literally in the Hollywood Hills in Studio City. And just, you know, up in the hills from Universal Studios on one side and Hollywood on the other side. Moving from there physically 
to India, to Rishikesh, to the Himalayas, to the banks of the Ganga River physically. But as I did that, there was a shift, not just in my latitude and longitude, but also in in my whole way of thinking. And it began really with exactly what I'm speaking to, which is that trust. The only way to open your heart is if you trust. If we, if we don't trust, and that's why perfection is such a defense mechanism for our egos, is the egos don't trust. The egos think it has to be my way. I've got to make it happen. And so it shuts us off. It shuts us off from possibility. And we plan it, we execute it. It's got to be how I want it, when I want it, the way I want it. And it shuts us and disconnects us from actually a flow that may be totally different than not only what we wanted, but what we ever could have dreamed of. And yet is so much more perfect than what we could have dreamed of. So yeah, I had this life for the first 25 years of my life that was really what you would look at or so many people would look at and say, oh my God, this perfect life. Like she had everything, the money, the opportunity, the privilege, the just world that I grew up in was a world of, of everything, you know, that people look at and say, oh, if only I could live there or vacation at that spot or wear these clothes or get invited to those parties. Well, I had all of that. Then I graduated from Stanford University. So you're like, oh, well, if only I could have, you know, that type of an education. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of the opportunity and privilege, there were two issues. One was the, the very general universal issue, which is, guess what? These things do not actually give you happiness. And no matter how much of them you have, they are not the key to joy and to peace and to freedom. There is no home or car or clothes or party or vacation or education that is the thing between you and happiness. We may think it is. Most of us do think it is. Almost everyone has their one thing between them and happiness. But once we get that thing, well, then there's just another thing. And so one issue that I faced was the general aspect of, oh my God, I have all these things and I'm not really that happy. But the other was on a very personal level, which was the experiences that I had had in the midst of privilege and opportunity and glamour and glitter and whatnot, which was that I had been severely traumatized as a child. I had been sexually abused in early childhood. I had then been abandoned. I developed severe bulimia in my adolescence. And and when I say severe, I was in and out of hospitals and really in a very, very bad both mental and psychological, but also physical, medical 
state due to it. And by the time I went to India with a backpack at 25, I had gotten to a place where I was managing my life. And I really thought that's what life was about. Like I had been in enough hospitals and eating disorder centers and done enough therapy that I was managing my food. I was managing my addiction. I was managing my schoolwork. I was getting straight A's in a PhD program after graduating from Stanford. I was managing my relationships. I had gotten married right after graduating undergrad. I was managing that. And I thought that that's, you know, what life's about. We just, we learn to manage our lives. And nobody ever said to me, nor did I ever realize, managing your life is not the highest possibility or goal that there is something so far beyond this death grip that we have on our lives of having to manage things in which we end up strangling them in so many ways. And again, this goes back to that whole aspect of perfection. It's like, I'm going to manage my meals, my food, my weight, my timing, my school, my relationships, my this, my that, lest anything get out of my control. And the underlying teaching of all of that is because I cannot be trusted and because the universe cannot be trusted. Hence, I need to micromanage it. Hence, I need to have this death grip on it. Hence, I need to make it perfect. Because if I just let go a little bit, I'm going to, in my case, gobble up the universe. I mean, I literally believe that if left to my own devices, there would be nothing left consumable in the world, that I was going to literally mm. consume the world. And that, I, that what that means is I can't be trusted. My instincts, my hunger, my own inner guidance cannot be trusted. The world cannot be trusted. I didn't trust anybody to tell me what I should eat, how it should go, how I should deal with my anger and my pain and my fear. So when I arrive in India at 25 with a backpack on a trip that has, you know, this is why I say just trust the universe because I had no interest in going to India. I knew nothing about India. My husband was on a spiritual path. He was looking for a guru. I agreed to go to India only because I was a very strict vegetarian, vegan actually. And I knew how difficult it was to get really pure, unadulterated vegan food in Europe where I had traveled a lot, even across America, in South America where I had been. And I knew that Indians understood what vegetarianism means and that there was not going to be chicken broth in my vegetable soup or eggs, you know, mixed up with my veggies or on my salad or fish in something. So I agreed to go and ended up within the first week having this extraordinary experience of 
the presence of the divine. As I stood on the banks of the Ganga River and Rosie, what was so, so powerful about it was that experience of the perfection of the divine was not just something that I experienced outside of me. So yes, it was outside. It was in this amazing river and in this everywhere, but it also was in me. That that, that perfection, that infinity, that divinity, not only pervaded everything that my eyes could behold, but it also was all of me. And suddenly there was no separation between me over here, this confused, fearful, addicted, struggling, but managing, you know, survivor over here and the universe over there. There was no separation anymore. And suddenly I was perfect and I was whole and I was complete and I was infinite and I was divine. And there was nothing of that separate self, that separate identification as the one to whom these things had happened, as the one who had experienced these, as the one who struggled. and. Yeah, it, uh, it transformed my life and led to me realizing that that was where I was meant to live and meant to be. And that sense of trusting, what I call a trust fall into the universe, was actually that that guided me through all of it and through finding my path of, you know, Hearing a voice, literally a voice saying, you must stay here. Uh, literally getting my feet glued to the ground in the ashram. Of walking into the Ganga River on the instruction of a, a being clad in flowing orange robes who was, you know, one of the most revered spiritual masters of India who told me to give my pain to the river. Mm. which to my psychodynamically trained PhD student was very sweet, but obviously impossible, obviously a joke, obviously something that couldn't happen. And yet, because I was in this suspended trust fall that just kept going and going and going, I did it. And it worked. And it defied everything that I ever thought I knew about the mind, the heart, psychology, emotions, healing, all of it. And in that, in that trust and in that faith and letting go into the universe, that's when I've actually experienced real perfection. Not, not as what I do, but as that which I am not separate from. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. I could just stay here and listen to you and just talk. tell me that, that story. I, I love it so much. And it, 
it feels so powerful. And where I go to is, do you think that every one of us has access to that ability to surrender and trust in being cared for by the divine? Absolutely. Absolutely. We do. And I think when I think about my actual life, my karmic journey, I think that that's one of the reasons that I experienced the trauma that I experienced as I was writing Hollywood to the Himalayas and then speaking about it when it, when it launched, you know, it's very, very rare. It's not something I've ever encountered before of a, of a spiritual leader of the East, especially to share that level of openness, honesty, humanity, vulnerability. And I I realized as I was going through all of this, that I think that the reason that I was gifted with, and I do see it as a gift, that level of trauma, you know, it's not the sort of gift that I would knowingly want to give someone or even knowingly (laughs) give to myself. But as it was given to me, I've seen it as a gift because what it's done is made me realize and made others realize through me that there is nothing that can happen to you that precludes you or disqualifies you or handicaps you from being able to trust. Mm. And I mean, I didn't trust first 25 years of my life. I didn't trust. I didn't trust people. I didn't trust the universe. I didn't trust God. I didn't trust myself. And yet I became able to do so with, with an awareness that who I am is not just the story of what happened to a beautiful, amazing, perfect, innocent young girl that never should have happened. But that me at 25 at that time, 50 now, that I am not that little girl. I love her. I have compassion for her. I speak to her. I wish that I had a magic wand to undo what happened to her. But that regardless of what happened to her, I as a a woman, a woman of 25 and now a woman of 50, I have the opportunity to be free regardless of what happened to her, that there is no need for me to take my birthright of joy, of love, of truth, of freedom, of spiritual connection and sacrifice it on the altar of the craziness of my biological father in the early years of my childhood. We can psychoanalyze him and say, okay, he suffered from this and from that and ego and anger and fear and trauma and whatnot, whatnot, whatnot. 
that's his karmic drama that certainly leaked over into my, into my life. But for me to take my entire life, all of that of who I am, that divinity, that perfection, that wholeness, that completeness, that extraordinary oneness, and to sacrifice it on the altar of his karmic drama and to say, oh, okay, because you leaked into me when I was young, I'm now going to continue to punish myself for it. Like you hurt me up until I was eight years old. But I'm going to spend the next 42 years hurting myself after that. And that's what most of us do is we, we experience difficulties, challenges, maybe even trauma. And we then continue to essentially abuse ourselves, to deprive ourselves. You know, in, in yoga, the sage Patanjali gave us these eight limbs of yoga, right? And if you look at the foundation, I won't go into all of that here, but if you look you at the- You can because we love it so much. I mean, this is... <laughs> the, foundation, the foundation of yoga, you know, asanas, our exercises are only, the physical exercises are only the third limb. The foundation of yoga is what we call yam and niyam, or here people say the yamas and the niyamas, which is how we live. And- Ahimsa or nonviolence is the first. Satya, truthfulness, second. Aspeya, non stealing, the third. So if I, if I spend the rest of my life, so if that happened to me up to the age of eight, and I'm now 50, and if I had spent 42 years, or if I continued to do it, telling myself, this is who you are. You are the victim of abuse, of abandonment. You are an addict. You are a bulimic. You are this. You are that. Well, first of all, that's violent. It's violent to myself because it causes harm. Violence is that which causes pain, suffering, harm. Number two, it is a lie. That is not who I am. Yes, those things happened to me. They are experiences that this body-mind complex has gone through on her karmic journey in this incarnation. But it's not who I am. And third, it's stealing. It is stealing that which God has given me that which is my birthright, which is joy, which is peace, which is truth, which is freedom. And if my mind keeps telling me, you will never be anything, you can never do anything, you are bad, you are wrong, you are stupid, you are unworthy. It's violent, it's untrue. And it is stealing from me the gifts of 
the gifts of my incarnation. And it's stealing from the universe who could benefit from the gifts of my incarnation. And this is true for all of us, regardless of what you've experienced, how you identify as it, what your gifts in this incarnation are. Every one of us is born with the birthright of joy, of peace, of freedom. That is who we are, of love. And we all have beautiful, beautiful, exquisite gifts. And if we sacrifice our life on the altar of someone else's actions, someone else's words, someone else's stupidity, someone else's ego, someone else's anger, then right there, we've just violated the very core basic foundation of yoga, yoga, but also just dharmic living, virtuous living, rightful living. Yeah. Oh, I love that so, so much. I wonder what happens when we create these experiences for ourselves, this self-punishment, or if we're continuously in that negative thought pattern, or we're living in that neurological pathway of repeating that violence towards ourselves. And we've been in this pattern for a large majority of our lives. How then, first of all, is it possible to change the narrative to change the awareness and the focus and to what happens when we feel like we've done everything that we can, but we're still reliving the trauma or the negative thought patterns and experience. Yeah. So Working with our minds is really the the purpose of, as well as the substance of, any kind of spiritual practice, regardless of what path it may be, what way it may be. And the dilemma is that, you know, we all understand that our bodies are something to work with. So if you walked into a yoga class and, you know, you said to the teacher, I can't do headstand. Like I can't, I can't balance and headstand or I can't do Nakarajasan. Like I just cannot grab the, that foot over my head. Uh, yeah. And, and, and it right, just doesn't <laughs> happen for me. And, you know, and, and the teacher says, well, so how long have you been practicing? And you're like, oh, I haven't started practicing yet. Like, that's why I'm here. I'm here because you're going you're gonna to show me how to do it. Well, the teacher's not going to take you and stand you on one foot and yank the other leg up over your head, you know, so that you tear every, every ligament in your body. The teacher's going to take you slowly through building block exercises that are going to loosen up your hips and your groin and your hamstring and it's going to 
strengthen your legs and loosen your shoulder and do all of these things so that suddenly your arm goes up over the shoulder, the leg comes up and you can effortlessly hold it because it has become part of who you are. And in the same way, the mind needs to be worked with, but it's so interesting, Rosie, because we, we seem to realize that every other part of our body needs to be worked with. So nobody would say, oh, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm going to buy myself a piano and yeah, tonight I think I'll be playing Beethoven for the music. <laughs> right? you know, yeah, just, 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 just give me a few hours to adjust the height of my stool and then come over and I'll play Beethoven. We understand that, I would need to practice that for a while, that my, my fingers, that the whole connection needs to be worked with. Whatever we want to do, we understand we need to practice it. That it's, it's a muscle, it's a skill. And, and the same thing is true of the minds. I like to think of the mind as a muscle because it really works like that. What you train it to do, it does. So if I get weights. But the only thing I do with my weights or I do a lot of, you know, curls, well, my biceps are going to get really strong. But the rest of my body isn't going to benefit in any way. I'm going to have kind of one go-to muscle in my body, which is a bicep. And I think of the mind like that is that it it strengthens the parts of it that we that we work. And, you know, of course, neurologically, we speak about neuronal networks, neuronal patterns. We say things like neurons that fire together, wire, wire together. together. We talk about, you know, all of these patterns. In, in India, we speak about something called sanskaras, which are really impressions, impressions, energetic, neurologic impressions upon the psyche and they don't change overnight you've got to work with them you've got to build new ones it's like if I take you know let's say let's say I take this little it's just a booklet but if I take this little booklet and I take my fingernail and I run my fingernail over and over and over again in one part and then I pour water over the booklet. Well, where's the water going to flow? It's going to flow into this groove that I've created with my fingernail. And then the more water that flows into it, the deeper the groove is going to get. But if I want to stop this groove, if this groove is the, I hate myself, I'm worthless, I'm useless, I'm stupid, I'm never going to be anything, I'm unworthy, I don't deserve, there is something inherently wrong with me, something lacking in me. All of those I am statements that stick us in jail rather than make us free. If you think of them as that, well, you can't just magic wand away a group. But what you do is you come over here and you start building and cutting a new groove. And as this one gets deeper, now when I pour the water, there'll be a time when it's kind of 50-50. Is it going to go here or go here? 
But as I work this groove, as I'm constantly with my fingernail, or maybe I even get a key or a knife, and I'm really working this groove, it's going to get deeper than this one. And now when I pour water over it, it's going to all flow here. And slowly, slowly, because the brain is much more like a river valley than like a booklet, this groove eventually will actually fill back in. The same way that when you've got a valley that a glacier ran through at one point, but now there's no more river or water or anything, eventually the river valley will, will start to fill with you know, trees and plants and whatnot, and eventually it'll fill itself up. In the same way, this groove eventually will disappear. And that's, that's the way to work with this is don't try to negate it because then all you're doing is creating an additional negative. Like now, in addition to all the things that were already wrong with you, now you can't even do this healing thing, right? You can't even do meditation, right? You're a failure at spirituality. So you don't want to do that. What you want to do is two things. One is you want to start building that second groove. So come up with new I am statements. And if you need to stick them on sticky notes all over your house, so be it. Whatever you need to do to constantly remind yourself, I am, I am whole, I am complete, I am divine. I am whole, I am complete, I am divine. In the Vedas, we are taught so beautifully in the Upanishads, which are seen as the, the essence of the Vedas. There's this beautiful mantra that says, Purnamada, Purnamida, Purnamudachate, Purnasya, Purnamadaya. And it means that the capital T, that the divine is infinite, whole, complete, infinite. And this, which has been removed from, created out of, that is also whole, complete, infinite. It's like the spiritual equivalent of, you know, mathematics where we learn Infinity minus 10 is what? Well, it's, it's infinity. Infinity divided by 100 is what? Infinity. Infinity divided by 8 billion. Infinity. And so as we have been created, not just by the creator, but of the creator, of that wholeness, completeness, infinity, so are we then whole, complete, pure, divine. So come up with new I am statements. Start laying a whole new groove for yourself and act accordingly. Serve. You've got so much to offer, whoever you are. Serve others. Allow them and you to realize how much you have to offer the world and whether it's your ability to wrap burritos and give them to homeless people 
whether it's your ability to design a website for for an NGO, whether it's an ability to make music or art or poetry or to teach or to have a smile that lights up the room or to make people laugh, whatever it may be, use that so that you remember and the world sees how much you have to offer and just start laying those new grooves. And the last piece, though, is working specifically with the the thought patterns that still the negative ones that say, I'm a victim of this. I'm the one who was abused, was abandoned, was betrayed, was cheated, gets the short end of the stick. The one who's too fat, too skinny, too old, too young, too this, too that is a beautiful, beautiful meditative practice called Niti Niti. And Niti Niti, the word literally means not this, Niti, not this. And it's a practice in which you sit and you close your eyes. You can do it lying down or sitting either way. Don't fall asleep though. (laughs) And you begin by saying, I am not my clothes. So I'm not my sorry. Okay, seems obvious. I get it. And then I'm not the skin beneath my sorry. I'm not the blood beneath my skin. I'm not the bones. And you go slowly, slowly through all of the physical parts of the body that we all understand I'm not that. You know, you burn your skin, it peels. Well, you don't lose yourself. You're clearly not your skin. You donate blood or you get a blood transfusion. You haven't lost self. And then slowly, slowly, I'm not my organs, not my kidneys. Can donate a kidney, get a kidney, don't lose myself. Mm. And then I am not my thoughts or my emotions or my feeling state. And that's a little more complex, but we know that we're not that because every thought, every emotion is actually created by a chemical and electrical pattern of activity in the brain. Can measure it, see it, we can manipulate it. You know, look at what getting drunk does. You feel differently, you act differently, you identify differently. It's why people do really stupid things when they're drunk that they wake up the next day and are like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. That wasn't me. Well, sure, it was you. It was just your chemistry and electricity functioning a little bit differently because it was impacted by the alcohol. So the fact that chemicals change what we think, how we think, how we feel is proof in the pudding for the fact that the thoughts and the emotions and the feelings are chemical and electrical. It's taking place in the brain. If you are brain dead and you no longer have any electrical activity in the brain, that's how we know you're not having thoughts. You're not having emotions. 
They can do right these functional MRIs that show that oxygen is just not being utilized in these ways. So all of our thoughts, all of our emotions are patterns of electricity, patterns of chemical and electrical interaction in our brain that are manipulatable by alcohol, by drugs, by electro, you know, shock treatment. Well, I'm not electricity. I'm not chemistry. So I'm not the thoughts in my brain. I'm not my personality because my personality kind of keeps changing. I'm not, and you just go through, neti, neti, not this, not that. I'm not what happened to me. There isn't one cell of my body today that was abused or abandoned. They've all regenerated. Every cell in the body regenerates over every seven, eight years. And you just remove all of that which you are not. And then in that beautiful space of you could call it emptiness, nothingness, or you could call it everythingness. In that beautiful state of recognizing what you are not and you remove everything that we normally identify as, it creates that beautiful space for that which you really are to emerge. I don't even know how to respond to that. That is so, <laughs> that is so beautiful. I, I can resonate with everything that you're saying so much. And it truly is a reminder of why I chose this path of why I became a student of yoga and yogic philosophy and have this desire for freedom and transformation. I mean, this, this is why, and I'm, I'm just, I'm so grateful. I, I can sit here for hours and listen to you speak. Um, and yes, just like you said in the beginning, I didn't ask any of the questions I prepared, which is hilarious. <laughs> and yet it's been perfect. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I do have one final question before, uh, we finish and, before I even ask you that question, I, I would just love to have you back on, uh, you know, the next time or, or whenever you can, because this has just been um, so nourishing on so many levels. So thank you for that. Of course, I would be overjoyed to be with you again. So the final question is um, why I started this podcast, why I started doing what I do and it's the idea, the belief that we are all radically loved and radically supported by God, spirit, source, whatever higher power of your understanding that the universe works for us and not against us. And so the final question to you is, how do you feel radically loved? In every minute and every moment, I feel so nourished and nurtured and held and supported and cared for. I mean, just the, the miracles of every day, you know, 
because of the life that I live in, in India, in the Himalayas, in an ashram amongst spiritual masters, one of the questions people ask so frequently is, well, so, you know, tell us miracles. Like what are, what are, what are the, the miraculous things that happen? And I always say every minute is a miracle. It's, it's such a miraculous opportunity to feel loved. I mean, I standing outside looking at the full moon last night, Ugh. you feel loved. It's just like, thank you, God. Thank you. I look at the stars in the sky. I look at the water of Mother Ganga or the ocean. You look in the face of a child. You look at flowers opening their petals to the sun. You look at trees. I mean, oh my God, I am such a tree hugger. Because it's, for, for me, hugging trees is just the easiest and fastest way to immediately just like, boom, connect into that love of the universe, of the divine. You know, I... I saw a bumper sticker once that said, I don't just hug trees, I make love to them. And, and I cracked up because I thought that, that is exactly what happens to me is it is this experience of absolute melting, merging oneness in love with the creator, the creation, all of the universe and the awareness of that. I am not separate from any of it. And so, yeah, I, I move through my world feeling so deeply loved, you know, and, and one of my, one of my personal practices is when people are not always, let's say, as kind as they could be, should they decide to put some more attention in that direction, Instead of feeling insulted or, you know, you take things in a bad way, mm-hmm. I've decided that basically anything anyone says to me is their language for I love you. And maybe, maybe in their language, it comes out in totally different ways, you know, in different languages. You know, you say it in French, you say it in Spanish, you say it in German, it's going to sound differently. And maybe sometimes in someone's personal language, you are stupid is their language's way of saying, I love you. And I I take it like that. I, I take pretty much whatever anyone says as their language for I love you, because ultimately what matters is not the words that come out of their mouth, but the words that I hear. And since I know that the the flow of the universe is love, if they are not intending to say to me, I love you, it means that in that moment, in their particular karmic experience of that moment, they're not in touch with love. And that's their karmic experience and journey and work and practice. But my karmic journey and work and practice is to feel love in every moment because I know it's there. And so I, 
I try as best I can never to let it get lost in translation and to just pretty much translate anything and everything that happens as the universe saying, I love you. Oh, I love that. Again, I'm like, I just want to continue to see you hear you speak. I, I'm so honored and so incredibly grateful. Where can people go to uh, get in touch with you if they want to learn more? So in person, they would come to the foothills of the Himalayas where I live in a beautiful city called Rishikesh at an incredible ashram called Parmarth Nikathon. And we welcome anyone and everyone, anytime and every time. And to connect with me on online, they can go, my website is sadviji.org. It's S-A-D-H-V-I-J-I.org. And that's my, it's my Instagram handle, also Sadviji. It's my YouTube, Sadviji. My, my Facebook is actually Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswati. Um, and they can also go to hollywoodtothehimalayas.com. That's Hollywood to the Himalayas just as you would think it's spelled.com. <laughs> and that and that has all of the info also about my book. Um, or they can also just go to Amazon and get it and have it. Yeah. So, and we'll put all of those links in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, wherever you get your podcasts, it will be in the info button. And also if you're watching this on YouTube, the links will be in the description below. So please remember to pick up Hollywood to the Himalayas. to the Himalayas. I want to say it. See it again. I want to say it right. I want to say it right. Hollywood to the Himalayas, uh, a journey of healing and transformation. It is such an incredible read. I recommend it to anyone who is wanting to grow internally and uh, externally as well. It is such an incredible story, so inspiring, so poetic. And I, I think that every single person should read this story. So thank you so much for writing it. And thank you again so much for being here. Sadviji, you are a true guru, a real authentic angel on earth. And I'm just, I'm so grateful to be connected with you. And, and I am so grateful that you did this show with us. Thank you so much for being here. Of course, it's been such a joy and congratulations on your upcoming book release just this week. A beautiful, a beautiful birthing of love and truth into the universe, which is just exactly what the universe needs. So I'm so, so glad to hear about this and that you're, that you're bringing all of your beautiful wisdom and experience into the world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. 
This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com. <laughs>